This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, to nobody's surprise, Basic Med is very safe. And we're going to talk about another kind of crash at Reno. Also, Tamarack in trouble again. This time, uh, one decides to depart an airplane. And stand by for a roundup from Sun and Fun. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, turn right, turn right. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, you captured at Sun and Fun our pilot town hall. This is with AOPA President and CEO Mark Baker and AOPA leadership going over the priorities for general aviation, for AOPA, kind of a pulse on uh, on what's new, what's important. That's right, Ian. We'll hear from AOPA's Mark Baker and leadership during Sun and Fun, and there was some news to report, which we'll hear about that later. Okay, so we'll look forward to that. All right, David, the news we want to talk about first, we'll, we'll get the government stuff out of the way and then we'll get to the sun and fun soon. But first, okay. something that I think we disagreed with a little bit, I, I think this is, I don't know, I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff. I think it's really interesting. And that is the basic med safety report. Now, Congress, when basic med was implemented, was required to provide to Congress a report on its safety, basically on the safety of pilots who operate under basic med. And I said in the teaser, to nobody's surprise, certainly not to mine, it turns out that basic med is just as safe as what they would call, you know, traditional medical certification. And that's where you and I were different on this as a news story. I didn't think it was much news because the review found no differences in safety when comparing private pilots flying under basic med with private pilots who obtained a third-class medical certificate. Yeah, so they did find, maybe not totally surprisingly, that basic med pilots are generally, they skew a little bit older. But even so, like you said, no change in safety. The accident rate continues to decline, and basic med has not impacted that in any meaningful way. You know, there's obviously less work for the FAA in terms of oversight, in turn, you know, and how they deal with the whole medical process every time. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I think, fantastic news all around. Yeah, and the thing is, Ian, that the number of individuals holding a private or student pilot certificate has climbed during that time from 2016 until now by about 200,000 from 584,000 in 2016 to 757,000 today. And that's about a 30% increase. Yeah. We're looking at at more hours and and more folks flying. Yeah. So before we move on, I I do want to say that we get calls all the time in the Pilot Information Center. This is the number you can call as an AOPA member, the 800-872-2672. People all the time asking still very basic questions about basic med. How do I do it? How do I renew it? That sort of thing. 
there are resources online. So just Google AOPA basic med, you'll find them. It's going to tell you how to become a basic med pilot and then uh, how to renew it as well. And just reading that basic website information can really put you a step ahead. So we talked last time, I think last time, two times ago, maybe about the Reno air races and the sad news that this will be the last time at the Reno air races, the national championship air races at Reno. People obviously read the news around the web. They listened to us. They saw this because, boy, man, they inundated the National Championship Air Races. Yeah, the website crashed, Ian, for folks who were trying to get tickets to that September 13th to 17th air race over at Reno-Stedman Airport. The crashes halted sales briefly on the opening day of sales. So there's a lot of interest in that Reno air race event. This will be the final time, as we did say a couple of episodes ago. I've never been. Have you been? I haven't. I think we talked last time. We've you know got it sort of a family history with Reno, but I personally have never been to the races now. Uh, me either. But if you were going to go, you would know that there will be seven classes of racing mm-hmm. this year. And a one-of-a-kind celebration has been pledged by Darren Griffin uh, of the Reno Tahoe Airport Association. And they have been holding those races at Reno since 1964, Ian, I found oh, out. That's amazing. And there's a couple of a couple of things in you know holding holding the works up. Uh, there's rapid development in the area, as one would suspect. Mm-hmm. In other airports, it's the same story. Yeah, encroachment. Challenging economic times and also public safety. Those all factored into that Reno decision mm-hmm. to make this the last year, September yeah. 13th to 17th, 2023. Yeah, and I expect that hopefully we'll see, and I would think maybe even by by the time the races go off this year, hopefully we'll hear of a new location starting next year. I hope, fingers crossed. I know they're looking for it actively. As we talked about, that it has in the past been held at many other locations around the country. So We'll see. Reno, obviously, for a lot of, lots of folks, not necessarily the easiest place to get to anyway. So uh, maybe a more central location, who knows, might might help with attendance. That would be really cool. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. And yeah, that's good news that people are excited about it. Absolutely. All right. We want to talk about Tamarack. Now, you may remember many months ago, we talked about Tamarack because they had gone through a bankruptcy. There were some issues with some FAA certification, I think resulting in an, from an accident with the winglets, and now there's been another incident. This one happened over the Gulf of Mexico. Somebody's flying a Citation at 30,000 feet and heard a big bang. Yeah, the Tamarant active winglet separated from the aircraft. We just uh, wrote a story about this. Thank you to Jim Moore for following up on that. And the active winglets, Ian, if you'll recall, they're more than just an aileron added to the outside of a Citation wing. It's actually part of a, a very large mechanism that moves and gives better efficiency to those jets and allows them to climb to a higher altitude faster, mm-hmm. thereby having more efficiency in route and then and it's saving money. Yeah, that's right. This is a startling event. Uh, it is not the first time that something like this has happened. Yeah. They did say, it's interesting, the statement, it's a little... Um... Well, you can imagine they, they that was that was shocking news for the guys at Tamarack. They said they're grateful that nobody was injured. They're going to learn more, obviously, through the NTSB. They mm-hmm. did say the FAA certification and engineering process served this pilot very well because he was obviously able to control the aircraft and make a very smooth approach and landing, which he was. Good point. They said during certification, they tested the quote-unquote one winglet removed scenario and uh, found that the airplane was able to fly normally. So that is that is good news. It'll be interesting to find out if this is a design flaw or an installation problem. 
You know, that's a good point, Ian. And then when you're talking about an installation issue, I really didn't think about that, but perhaps that did factor in. The the company itself has gone through some changes. They did file for Chapter 11 some time ago mm-hmm. and emerged from that. That's when customers and vendors chipped in $1.95 million to keep Tamarack afloat. And I think that the overall goal for, for the folks at Tamarack is to have this type of technology and have it available for the military and for other commercial purposes yeah. where there would be a lot of customers, not just for GA use. So there's a lot of interest in that technology moving forward. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, we'll be right back. Okay, hey, let's talk about the fun stuff. Sun and Fun is wrapped up. First big air show of the year. You were there. Good attendance. Couple of pieces of news. How, how did it go? What did you think? You know, it was highly attended. Sun and Fun was a, a great time, and a great time was had by all. There was news that came out of Sun and Fun this year. It's not normally a heavy news event. We saw several pieces of uh, new equipment. We saw a couple of new aircraft. And I met some folks. I just Can I tip my hat to a few people that I met that listened to Hangar Talk? Yeah. And I think they'd love it if we just said hello. Yeah. I wanted to say thanks very much to, uh, to Todd Hensley for saying hello at the AOPA campus. He came by to look at the, uh, at the Cessna 170 sweeps. Uh, Phil Lightstone, we appreciate it. Of course, Josh Flowers and Chelsea Smith who've been on the program and Bruno Brasileiro from uh, Fly With Bruno. It was great to see Bruno. The folks over at My Jet Manager, Bob LeBlanc, was really helpful to us when we were um, staging the Junkers A50 that we'll talk about in a minute. And um, and Mike Harris over at Forge Flight Works. So I just want to say hello to all those folks and thank them again cool. for being so nice and coming by and saying hello. And I guess I can tell about you know my distinctive Atlantan accent, so I'm kind of easy to track down. They can pick you <laughs> out, yeah. <laughs> but there were some cool products and cool airplanes, Ian. Yeah, let's get one out of the way, which is just kind of a news hit that, that you found that I think is interesting, and that is that um, Blue Line Aviation, which is a – Let's be honest, a flight school I'd never even heard of based out of North Carolina. They've ordered 115 archers and seminoles. Yeah, um, Ian, as you said, 115 single-engine Archer TXs and twin-engine Seminoles. Now, that's over four years. Mm-hmm. and uh, But still, when you think about it, that's, golly, that's like 30 aircraft a year for the next four years for Piper. And uh, they're based over at the Johnston Regional Airport in North Carolina. They're opening up a Winter Haven Regional Airport location in Florida. And that's pretty close to Piper's Vero Beach headquarters, yeah. if you will. But I think that's that's going to be a nice kick in the uh, kick in the bottom dollar for Piper, and you know we talk about those gamma numbers quite a lot, and that's going to boost them significantly. Yeah, that's right, and and amazing that this school, like I said, school that a lot of us probably never even heard of, and they're obviously going to expand greatly. So that's that's really cool for them. So I think we heard something from Bose as well, right? Hey, good pun. Heard something from Bose. I like that, Ian. Oh. <laughs> Unintentional pun, <laughs> but that's a good one. So the news, the new Bose A30 headset. Look, first, let's get this out of the way. It's twelve hundred and fifty dollars. I just want to get that out of the way right off the bat. But it's a redesigned. 
It has a lot uh, less clamping forces on your head. I tried one on. Dave Hirschman and I ferried a, a Beechcraft a Baron, and I was lucky to accompany him. And he didn't tell me what was going to be different about it. He said, just try these on. And they were lighter weight, and they had uh, less clamping force and a little bit better audio. But you got to be careful, Ian, if you're wearing sunglasses or a hat, because you really need a very secure ear seal for the for the headset to do its job. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So I guess that's, well, that's the trade-off, right? If they're going to clamp a little bit less, they're going to, you know, you got to be a little more careful with what you're wearing around them. So mm -hmm. yeah, 1250 bucks. I think they also, this is the first time they've used some digital ANR technology in their kind of flagship headset, right? Because previously they've had an analog technology, which is it's different. That's a good than, point. That's yeah. a good point where you, yeah, you hear the audio from different places sort of strategically throughout the, the ear cup. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And then in terms of airplanes, one thing you saw that I think really caught your eye was the Piper and Dar announcement in terms of Garmin and some of their new technology. You know, the Piper M600 and the Dyer TBM960 now have that new plane sync technology. Alyssa uh, Cobb wrote this story, but it's what's interesting to me, and I went by and, and, at the booth and took a look. There's also a new propeller for one of the TBMs. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that you could you, you can monitor your systems remotely, and you can download updates to that Garmin G3000 remotely. That's cool. You know, you can have enhancements to the synthetic vision system, onboard weather radar, navigation and flight planning, among other things. And, you know, the Piper M600 and the TBM 960 already have Garmin Autoland. Now, they call it two different things, but they already have the Autoland technology halo when you're talking about the Piper and HomeSafe in the TBM. That is cool. And, you know, I was I was trying to wonder, like, what is, other than the download of databases, which is really cool, and being able to do that remotely, I was like, well, what's the benefit? But, you know, you can imagine a place where it's like you go and you order fuel somewhere, you're at the hotel, you want to check, have they actually fueled this thing? What time do I need to leave for the airport? Do I need to call them again? You know, so I could see that. That might be, that might be pretty useful. And oil temperature, battery voltage. I mean, you could you could find out if you left your master switch on, I guess, by checking the battery voltage remotely. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, you know, a little, uh, nice little upgrade for those guys. Another thing that's going to impact, I think, us in the in the media world that was kind of interesting is that flying has been on the tear a little bit in the acquisition. They bought by Dan Johnson, which a lot of LSA folks and a lot of sport pilot type, you know, powered parachute, trikes, that community, they, they read. They're rebranding that to affordable aviation. That's right, Ian. Affordable aviation is going to be sort of rolled into the Flying Magazine flagship, if you will. And a lot of the By Dan Johnson content will be available on the flyingmagazines.com site as well. But Dan Johnson's been in the business for 20 years. That's a significant amount of time. He's built up quite a following. He is, uh, I would say he is a, a I don't know if I would say he's a luminary, but people sure pay attention to what he writes yeah. in the LSA community. And that's important stuff. And, yeah. you know, Fly Magazine is looking to expand their footprint in, in the general aviation world. And that's one way they're going to do it. But there's another significant development, too. Yeah. So this one came because Isabel Goyer, who is the editor of Plane and Pilot magazine, posted something about that she was leaving, that... The previous publisher had been acquired and then spun off. And she said, you know, by somebody we all know. And of course, it only took about a day or two for that to come out. And the, the announcement is that Flying has purchased Plane and Pilot, which is a really interesting acquisition. 
So they're going to continue to print the magazine. They're going to continue to have it on the newsstand, I guess, in certain places. And they'll sell subscriptions just like anything else. And I guess the idea is that maybe flying, they're calling a little more aspirational and plane and pilot a little more sort of down to earth, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see kind of how they differentiate those and how they share content. Right, right. That makes sense. So a little bit more down to earth is, is the way Flying Magazine put it out in a news release. But Plane and Pilot has made a name for itself over the last several decades, too. And it's um, anytime you see some combinations going on in the news world, it kind of hurts us because we work in that environment. You know, yeah. we don't, don't necessarily like to see that happen uh, as bigger companies uh, swallow up smaller companies. But maybe it's better for Plane and Pilot because on the advertising front, or maybe the, the book will get thicker. You know, maybe there'll yeah. be more content in there. And so one could only hope for that. And it also broadens the horizons for a flying magazine as well. Yeah, that'd be great. So my favorite announcement from Sun and Fun, and the one that I think I am most excited about, because I'm a believer now, and that's the Rotex announcement. So the Rotex 916 IS, this is the 160 horsepower version of the Rotex. And so now we're talking, you know, four seat traditional airplane sort of applications. And as somebody who now has a little bit more experience behind Rotax and has kind of flown them, I, like I said, I'm a believer. This is a cool, cool announcement. I'm really excited. They came out in the Cub Crafters, which is a perfect, I think, application for it. So this is, this is a cool deal. This is exciting. Yeah, the turbo-boosted 160-horsepower Rotax 916IS engine which is about $49,500. You know, I always like to look at the prices first. When I order from a menu, when I'm eating dinner, I'll like order from the price <laughs> side and look at it. But no, 40, yeah, about $50,000. Yeah. But it comes with a 2,000-hour TBO. It only weighs about 189 pounds. Yes. So the applications could be, like you said, Ian, the applications could be significant mm -hmm. in our GA world that we play in in our sandbox yeah the carbon cup was the first one out the gate with it and they they were flying one down with that engine and we hope to hear a little bit more about it but that is significant and that that carbon cup came out with a, a little bit of a newer model as well to go with that engine yeah so you mentioned i think the the price about 50 grand which is about in line you know these days for a new engine of that size the 2000 hour TBO right off the bat, which is great. The other thing you get with this is a five year warranty, which I just think is awesome. So that, that definitely oh, beats good point. Um, Continental. I'm not so sure about Lycoming. And then they have an extended care warranty program, which can cover it for TBO, which is just awesome. So yeah, this is a good deal. And I think, I think we'll just see a continued application of Rotax into this kind of light GA space. And that's, that's exciting for people who are Rotax fans. Yeah. And the other thing uh, before we sign off on that particular little story is that one of the uh, principals, that after they unveiled that engine, they said uh, that the engine is so quiet you can carry on a conversation with your passenger without headsets. So you might not need the $1,250 Bose headset to have a conversation yeah. in, a, the, in the, you save in the Carbon Cub UL. Save money on your engine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. All right, David. So finishing off with the Sun and Fun News, probably the most exciting thing was to see the Yunkers. The A50, this came out with at Friedrichshafen last year. They brought it over to the States. They're selling them now. We got to fly this thing. You got to photograph it. It's just so cool. I was I was excited to see your photos. So tell me, tell me all about it. What did you think? 
You know, Ian, it's a beautiful aircraft, and I did um, photograph some details to that aircraft, everything from the spoked wheels to the wooden steps, you know, on the on the wing step, and leather combing around the two-hole cockpit. It's a, just a beautiful aircraft. Of course, it, like you said, it's an open-hole cockpit airplane, two-seat tandem. Mm-hmm. It has a Rotax engine in it. It goes about... Uh, 80 knots or so, uh, maybe 90 if you want to really push it. Yeah. Crosswind landings could be tricky because those are pretty narrow wheels, Ian. They're spoked wheels. They're kind of narrow. They look like motorcycle wheels to me. Hmm. So as a pilot, I'd be careful with that. But it's a beautiful airplane. Of course, it's got that corrugated fuselage and corrugated wings that is significant. Um, It's really a throwback to the the late 1920s. And uh, and the throwback only comes cost $200,000. So we got to get that out of the way like we always do. Yeah. Whenever we have prices, we want to mention it. Yeah. Which, you know, that's, it sounds like a lot of money, but you know, for an, uh, a high quality, well-built, cool factor sort of LSA, I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of in the ballpark these days. It's a neat airplane. I'll tell you what, it was the darling of sun and fun. It, it attracted a lot of attention. And Michelle Walker, you know, who works for us on the video side, she got to fly it. She's the LSA pilot, and she gave it good marks, as did Tom Horn. So we got some flying in. This aircraft also significantly in it has a ballistic recovery parachute, full aircraft parachute, yeah, that's and the cool. Garmin 3X touchscreen avionics, and it's a FADEC engine, mm-hmm. so it's a lot less to monitor as well. Really cool airplane, really neat looking. Yeah. Yeah, two hundred grand, but uh, like we're t- like we're saying, for all that new technology, it might not be such a bad deal. Yeah. So I'm looking at your photo of Tom there in the in the front cockpit. Uh huh. What did he say about the width of the cockpit? He looks a little. His shoulders look a little scrunched. I mean, did you sit in it? What'd you think? I did. I sat in it. I sat in actually the way that you pilot that aircraft. The pilot in command sits in the rear. And I did sit in the rear, and I looked at the avionics and the layout. Everything fell to place, uh, right to hand. That was good. I felt like it did have good visibility, even from the back seat for a tail dragger. That's good. I did not get into uh, into the front seat, so that I'm unfamiliar with being in the front seat. But it seemed like there was enough shoulder room in the back seat that the fuselage is designed for the two cockpits are very similar. So I would think that there would be enough room. But there's not a whole lot of storage on that airplane. So it's just, you know, it's a good Saturday, Sunday kick around aircraft, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can imagine, even if the front cockpit's a little bit smaller, it's like you're going to be flying it solo a lot of the time. And, you you know, when you can convince a friend or a kid or a spouse or whatever to go up with you, they'll take the front seat. But yeah, I, I mean, you can imagine, right? Summer evenings loafing around the countryside at that in 80 knots. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. It'd be great. And don't forget to bring a helmet or a leather helmet or, you know, safety goggles or something like that. Because you are, like you said, open cockpit. You're in the open. Yeah, that's that's very cool. All right. So the other big thing that happened for AOPA, obviously, at Sun and Fun was the Pilot Town Hall. That's with Mark Baker and AOPA leadership. And they go over all things GA news and what's going on in Washington, basic med, all that kind of stuff. So it's really good to get that update every once in a while. And I'm really glad you captured it, David, for the show.
We have one of our uh, wingmen, Richard McSpadden, who's stuck somewhere up north, uh, trying to get transitioning down this way. I don't think he'll make this, uh, this group this morning. But let me introduce my, my team that is with me here today. Colin Stagnito leads our media and publishing side. So Colin, an outreach, right? Yep. Elizabeth Tennyson is the uh, You Can Fly Foundation lead, and we'll be talking and updating about what's going on on that side. And for those of you that need a lawyer, this is a really good one. <laughs> Justine uh, has been with uh, our general counsel and leads the legal services group over there, and uh, we've got lots of activity to talk about. So I think you know, but I think it's worth mentioning that aviation is booming. It's, a, it's an exciting time. In my 45 years plus flying, I have never seen airplanes sell so fast that you can't even get, you know, if they're listed, they're gone. People are getting their pilot's licenses. People are flying more. You talk about flight hours. 20 million flight hours roughly before the pandemic. You know, last year was 26 million flight hours. So that's up a lot previous to that. And people are using their aircraft for all kinds of different things, including training, getting from place to place, and replacing, you know, going on the airline. So it's been a pretty exciting time to be part of a, the growth in general aviation. But there are some issues. There's some really important issues that um, your membership at AOPA matter for, which is, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the fuel and what we've got going on for the low-lead conversion and that advocacy work that we've got around that. There's a reauthorization bill that's uh, for, for aviation uh, that comes due in September of 23. And for the very first time, we believe that the uh, Congress is going to name part of the bill a general aviation bill. There's never been a bill introduced in Congress that's called a general aviation bill that supports the growth, the long-term value of general aviation. So I think it's going to be a pretty interesting time. One of the things that we are advocating for pretty strongly in that is to have public ramp space at public airports. And where we feel a little um, challenged these days has been a business opportunity for lots of consolidations and FBOs, and God bless that. That's okay if they want to do that. But the only thing that we feel really strongly about, and I know John and Martha King feel strongly about it, as I do, is uh, when you go to a public airport that was paid for by the taxpayer, there should be a place to park at a reasonable price uh, for as long as you want and not buy goods and services that you didn't intend to buy nor need at those choices. So in the bill, we are going to be working hard to find a way to get that language introduced. And part of what will be is at all public airports, there should be a requirement to have a carve-out of some spot for public parking. I didn't say free, by the way, but I did say it'll be reasonable. Uh, we think, you know, the opportunity to look at the basic med, which has been a tremendous success, and, you know, if you look back in the six years that's been out there, and the FAA released their look-back survey, and it said, clearly as it's true, basic med is just as safe as the third-class medical, and it's been a great result, and I want to thank you for giving safe and flying with basic med because it continues to give us the opportunity even enlarge the size of basic med as we look at the reauthorization going forward. It's a real opportunity. As I think about other things that are important to general aviation and you know access and growth and getting DPEs has been one of the real frustrations that I've had in watching aviation boom and grow. We had about 1,500 DPEs in 1980 when we were doing about 45, 50,000 pilot's licenses a year, PPL, private pilot's licenses a year. We fell all the way down to about 700 designated examiners for a number of years as we were seeing 17 to 20,000 PPLs. Now we're headed back to that 35. 40, hopefully back to 50,000 PPLs a year. Uh, but the designated examiners have only grown to 900 and, and change. We really need to see 1,500 or more DPEs in the system so people can
can get their license at a reasonable time, get ready, prepared, get signed off, and go to get a, uh, your exam done without waiting months and months and months. So it's one of, the, one of the reforms that's really kind of a frustrating part because the FAA says they don't have enough people to manage the DBEs. So they need more people to check the checkers. And in the meantime, we're not getting you know these licenses turned out as fast as we should, what we owe it to the general consuming public. So it's on the, one of our top lists that, that we want to get done uh, as we look forward to going this year. So, you know, I'm going to have Colin talk in a minute here a little bit about what's going on the outreach side, Colin, and what we've uh, what we've seen so far in Buckeye and others. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. So, uh, a few months ago in February, AOPA had its first fly-in at an air show, and it was a really great opportunity to combine a traditional AOPA fly-in with a major existing air show. And the result was 30,000 attendees at Buckeye, Arizona, and they were enjoying the air show in the afternoon. In the morning, they were enjoying an exhibit hall the AOPA set up, aircraft display, seminars, aircraft camping, and other things that, that AOPA was able to bring to that partnership with Buckeye. Really successful. We had a great time with that, and we are going to be doing that again next February in Phoenix. So, so I heard you're going to give an airplane away again later this year. What's going on there? <laughs> well, we are giving our 26th airplane away. The AOPA sweepstakes, if you haven't heard, and I'm sure most of you have, is a 1953 Cessna 170 be. And we're not just going to take it and restore it to uh, to stock condition. Uh, we've already taken the whole engine off the airplane, and uh, everything firewall forward is new. We replaced the engine with a Continental Prime IO370 195 horsepower engine. That replaced a 145 horsepower engine. So this, this plane climbs at over 1,500 feet per minute, takes off and lands in under 300 feet. And it, we really were optimizing it to be a backcountry airplane. That's already been done. That was done by Barnstormer's workshop in Atlanta. And after Sun and Fun, we're going to send it up to Gardner Low Avionics in Falcon Field. And we're going to take out the entire instrument panel, physically remove the panel, and put in a new panel that's going to have Garmin, Aspen, and PS Engineering avionics. So the vacuum pump is going to be gone. It's going to be a lot lighter. It's going to be an IFR-capable airplane. But it's still going to have a retro look. And then uh, finally, we're going to put in a new interior and paint the aircraft a really unique backcountry paint scheme, which uh, I've seen the preview. I'm really excited about it. I think members are going to like it. So a lucky pilot is going to win this airplane. When? Well, the sweepstakes ends December 29th, and it takes us about a couple of weeks to gather everybody's name together, and um, we have a, a company in New York City who actually does the drawing. We'll know who won in early January. You'll know who won maybe late January. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. And so uh, as part of uh, airplanes and piston airplanes, uh, one of the things that occupies a great deal of my time in, in life right now is the successful transition and safe transition as we think about moving away from low lead fuel. Give you a little bit of a history lesson and then uh, talk about where we're going to go from here. You know, low lead fuel was adopted in the late early 70s, if you will. We had 80 octane out there. If you remember, some of the people in this audience are old enough to remember 80 octane, right, Paul? And 130 and others that were all out there, and we used this great fuel to um, to support our aviation activity for a really long time. And low lead has been a great product for our engines, for our airplanes, and getting around. But it has a problem. There's a problem that I actually agree. It's time for us to move 
away from this product into a no-lead uh, fuel. Uh, we know that that four-letter word, lead, is never going to be something that we can be satisfied with as users of this environment, but we have to find a way to replace it in a way that's economical, safe, and long-term sustainable, if you will, for burning this fuel. And again, I, I use this term over and over and over, but it is true. If it was easy, it had been done a long time ago. It ain't easy. Uh, that fuel had done a great job, but there are all understanding that that fuel is probably not going to be available to us anyway, helps us move in a faster way. You know, there's only one place that you pick up most of the lead in the world from today in Liverpool, England, the TEL. And that's going to be under, I'm sure, challenges about going forward. So even if we said we wanted to go and protect it, which I don't think we should, or we will, uh, I think you have to look at the supply chain as another reason why we need to move to a different fuel. Now, there had been a program called PAFI, the Piston Aviation Fuel Initiative, which has been funded by you, the taxpayers, for close to a dozen years now. We spent $40, $50 million using hundreds of different chemistries to try and come up with a fuel that actually works as well as 100 low lead, uh, but being lead free. That program, unfortunately, has not found a success product yet, successful product yet. They're still going. They're still working through it today as we speak. There'll be some more fuels that'll be tested this spring and summer, but it is a challenge. Now, there is one fuel that actually has an STC, a supplemental type certificate, today for 100, and that is the GAMI fuel. And uh, the GAMI team here has a booth, and if you've got more interest, you should go by and see them. They are selling their STCs today. We're working with them and everybody in the industry to find out how to help, help get it commercially available and in a way that is safe. The transition is understood. We build confidence piece by piece that this fuel is going to be the right alternative fuel for us because we want nothing more than to get in front of the airport communities and say we are a good neighbor for you and move it away from low lead. But it is an important transition that we're working on. It's taken up a lot of time, but we also got to do it in a smart, safe, well, it sounds like slow, but at the end of the day, we can't just turn the spigot on here. We have to go build this fuel, find people to build it, build confidence in the marketplace that it's ready to go. But at least we have one. The Swift product is not maybe too far behind. They have their 94, which burns great in all of our, you know, 0300, 0360 motors, any, any kind of a lower compression motors. It's out there in uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of locations today. It is a good alternative to not having a low lead fuel for your airplane that doesn't need it. So we'll talk, you know, answer some questions about that in a little bit. But that is one of the biggest challenges on our horizon is to make sure we can communicate, get the community together, that we are committed to changing away from low lead as fast and as soon as we can. Now, with the good news side, Elizabeth could talk a little bit about what's going on in the You Can Fly and the, and the foundation side because there's lots of good news stories going on. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, there is a lot of good news in the programs that are supported by the AOPA Foundation. So while we very much appreciate your membership and your member dues, a lot of the work that we do is funded entirely by donors. And I see some of our loyal and generous donors out there in the audience. And thank you so much for being here. So you may be familiar with You Can Fly. Hopefully that sounds familiar to some of you. And that was a program that was created a few years back to meet people where they are in their aviation journey and help them get flying and keep flying. So we started a high school program designed to introduce young people to aviation and the opportunities that exist for them there. We also have a flight training program designed to improve the experience of flight training, which I think we all know can be a little bit uneven. We started a flying clubs program to get people access to aircraft affordably all around the country. And of course, we have our Rusty Pilots program. So I love to give you some updates on the progress those programs have made over the 
the last few years. Almost 12,000 pilots are back in the air thanks to Rusty Pilots. They've completed the course, then they've completed a flight review, and they've told us they are back to active flying status, which is enough to make a real difference in our numbers, 12,000 pilots back in the air. On the flight training side, we every year do a survey of students, and not just student pilots, anybody who has done flight training in the past 12 months. And we ask them, what's the quality of your experience? What was good? What was bad? We then provide report cards to participating flight schools so they can see anonymized data from their customers and understand where they can strengthen. And we help connect them to other flight schools that are being successful so that we can have a better experience no matter where we go to train. And we award the schools that do the best job of that. That's coming up here in just a couple of weeks at Redbird Migration. We'll be presenting those awards. But we have evaluated thousands of schools around the country. And we're excited to point out the ones that are doing a great job. We also have our AOPA Flight Training Advantage, which is an incredible new system that includes an iPad app as well as web portals that you can access on any device. And it's designed to make your training more transparent, easier, and more efficient. I think probably most of you at some point in your training had the experience of showing up at the flight school and your instructor looking at you and saying, what do you want to do today? Or what did we do last time? Well, that's not a very efficient way to spend your money trying to figure out what you want to do today or what happened last time. And so this product makes it easy for you to see every lesson you've had. It automatically assigns the next lesson to be as efficient as possible so you and your instructor both know everything you've done. The instructor can grade your performance while you're up in the air so that you can see, am I meeting standards? Do I have a long way to go? Uh, what do I need to do next? And you and your instructor can be ready for every lesson and even if you get a new instructor, that data is there. So there's no need for you to repeat that lesson over and over again, wasting your time and money. So we're very excited about that. So far, almost 8,000 hours have been logged in that system and we've got about 1,500 flight instructors and flight schools using it today. So we're looking to see that deliver some really good results over the next few years. On the flying club side, has anyone here ever belonged to a flying club, had a good experience? <laughs> great. That is a, a lot of folks. And so you guys know um, that a flying club is a great way to fly more affordably and get so many of the benefits of aircraft ownership without having to take on all that effort and all that expense yourself. So we've helped start 222 flying clubs around the country. These are serving thousands of pilots. Some of them have as many as 10 or 12 aircraft in their fleet. And that's giving a lot of people around the country a chance to build a community, build a safety culture, and get out and fly more than they otherwise would. But the biggest of all of these programs is our high school program. We offer a four-year, completely free aviation STEM curriculum to high schools around the country. And right now, this month in high schools everywhere, we've got more than 16,000 kids taking this program. Not only do they earn high school credit, there are 82 colleges and universities around the country that will give them college credit or dual enrollment. So they are making their way towards a college degree even as they're in high school. We've had over 1,000 start learning to fly just in the first semester of this school year. So these kids are taking this to heart. They're learning about aviation, they're 
discovering opportunities they didn't know that they had, and they're getting out there and pursuing them. And out of our first couple of groups of graduates, our most recent group of graduates from the program, 70% said they're going on to pursue an aviation career. Not all of them will be pilots, but they're also going to be maintainers, even aviation lawyers. So we're seeing kids discover that there's a place for them in our community, and they're getting excited about it. So that is the good news, and I am very lucky to be the person who gets to deliver that. Thanks, Elizabeth, and, and I think it is really good news. And, and I think we have some airport support networks here. Do we have anybody? We, the ASN, yeah, we got one there, 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 there. So Mike will be up here a little bit when we talk about airports, because airports are the heart of our activity, right? And by having the eyes and ears is really important. And we were celebrating, what are we, over 2,200 now, ASNs, 2,300 now, keep bidding. Uh, it's been people that volunteer to keep an eye on our airports around the country, get the eyes and ears going. It's one of our most successful programs. So thanks, Mike, for what's going on, on that side. Because we know we need more hangars. It's also one of the issues that we've got on our AIP list. We've got to get more hangars in these public use airports to help support our aircraft. So, Justine, you can tell a little bit about what's going on on the FAA side of uh, the challenges and the reason we have over 70,000 people signed up for our legal services. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Mark. So, I'm curious, how many people in the crowd here belong to the Pilot Protection Services Plan? Excellent. I do too, and I use those services. And so we are handling about 5,000 issues a year we're helping pilots with. And what a lot of people don't remember is that we're there for some of the fun things as well as the not so fun things. And so yes, we will help with FAA enforcement issues, investigations, custom and border patrol issues when you're crossing the borders and have an issue. We also help with purchase and sales transactions, federal tax issues. If you have a hangar or a tie-down lease you'd like us to take a look at, we help you with that too. So we've been keeping very busy. Some of the areas that we've been seeing trending involve more use, which is good news, of the compliance program instead of using a legal hammer on people when they make an inadvertent mistake. And so we're very pleased with the way that that is going. We are also seeing an uptick in the FAA making inquiries to pilots who have received or are receiving VA disability benefits and the reporting of those on their medical applications. So if you have any questions about that, give our legal and medical teams a call and we can help you understand what the requirements are. So the last update I'll give on uh, Richard's behalf, you know, the Heck family is supposed to keep an eye on him. I don't know where he is, uh, but Richard's on his way down. As you know, we're very lucky to have uh, Richard McSpadden, who leads up our Air Safety Institute and uh, being the, the lead, former lead for the Thunderbirds. So he's done a great job with the videos that we get out today as it relates to what we can learn from accidents, what we can learn from opportunities to be better, safer pilots. So I'm proud to say that over 12 million views happened in the last 12 months on the stuff that he's putting out. And, and you're doing a great job being safe. This is the safest couple of years that general aviation has ever, ever had from both a rate and absolute number. So thanks for doing that. It helps us get down the road on, on those things. But now let's get to the best part, Eric. You got a microphone to get out there and, and, and answer some questions? Lou Sino? Yeah. Hey. From the Mark. great state of Michigan? Yes, sir. Good morning. Uh, the 100 no-lead from GAMI, drop-in replacement like SAF, you can you 
you've got 100 in the tank, you can put that in and it all works. So Lou's question was about, can you drop in the 100 low lead on top of, or put the gamey fuel on top of, in the, and burn them together? The word that they use is called fungibility in that world. I think, Paul, if I'm missing this, Paul Miller, who is our fuel expert, who is under a, a retainer with AOPA to help figure this out. But it is. It is both fungible both ways. It's been tested in, in multiple ways to either lay on top of or underneath and be burned successfully alongside of the current low lead, which is an important part of the transition. It was also important part of the transition early on, which was established, is not to require any type of uh, update to the engines. You know, we'd all like to have electronic ignition eventually, which would probably help this program along in, you know, in an interesting way, but we did not want to put a burden on airplanes that are on average 47 years old to have all this mechanical work done. So I think uh, the GAMI fuel as we know it today can be burned in any kind of a, a representation. Am I getting this right, Paul? Uh, with any kind of quantity of other fuel in there. Now, what may be more complicated if there gets to be a third or fourth fuel, and how do they all intersect with each other? That I don't think we know enough about yet, and that'll have to be sorted out. That's way back. Hi, I've got a house in Alaska and one in Georgia, and there's a little item called Canada between the two, and I'm on basic med. What do you think the odds of the Canadians coming to their senses and letting poor pilots like me cross their real estate? So, anybody here Canadian? Okay. You know, they're such nice people, but they don't get much done. You know, we've been working for five years since we started this program with the basic med. We've got Mexico, the Caribbean now is largely all done. And Canada stands yet, they're, they're looking into it. Not very hard, not very fast. But we've applied both with the, as a bilateral agreement with the Ministry of Transport in Canada every year for five years, and still don't have a response from that. Uh, but now we have been working for, in a parallel way with um, ICAO, International Civil Aviation Authority, which is in Montreal, to get basic med recognized as an international standard. And that is making its way, it'll probably beat the Canadian bilateral agreement, which is not saying much for it because ICAO doesn't happen very fast either. But I, I have a pretty high degree of confidence we're going to get one way or the other, but most likely the ICAO method of getting this uh, basic med understood. This last letter out from the FAA, which says it is safe, was quite helpful actually, to say it's, it's ready to go and, and uh, you should use it. I, I really wish we had more oomph in Canada, but we, I wish I could get it done this year, but probably not this year. Mark? Hey, good morning. Thank you for setting up this uh, town hall. I'm Trent from Citation Jet Pilots Association. So you were talking earlier, been, been working with Mike and, uh, and others about uh, the, the GA uh, uh, aprons and, and spaces. Again, we love the FBOs for the services that they provide for all of us. Uh, where do you think we're going to end up after going through the reauthorization? Uh, where do you think we're going to go uh, as far as having free space for AOPA members going forward? We're going to come up here, Mike, and take a, take a shot at that. Mike Ginter is our uh, VP for that world of, of airports. So go ahead, Michael. Hey, Mike. Hey, Trent. Thanks for the question. So the um, question was, where will we end up? What we're asking for is uh, public use airports, publicly funded, to provide some transient ramp space that might be an option to maybe the monopoly big chain FBO, right? That's what we're asking for. It's not a, re not a crazy request at all. Where will we end up? That depends on what direction Congress and the committees want to take it. We know what we want. We think it's moral high ground. We think it's the right ask. Uh, 
it's really hard to find fault with what we're asking for. We're not asking for free. We're asking for fair and reasonable. But if that transient parking ramp space can be made available at publicly funded airports, there's an option for pilots that are owner-operators, your members, right, They're flying very nice equipment. Maybe they don't mind, uh, maybe they don't need gas or they don't mind pumping their own Jet A. That's what we're looking for. So uh, we're confident. There's a horror story out there. It just happened a month ago, and it was a Lancer Evolution flew into St. Augustine out of Ormond Beach, founder of the Lobo organization, Lancer Owners and Builders, and uh, flew up with his wife with full tanks. They landed 20 minutes later in St. Augustine just for lunch. They landed at, uh, parked at Atlantic, the only FBO in the field. It's a very large airport. Uh, used to have some commercial service. They're trying to get it back. Lots of real estate. And they parked at Atlantic because that's the only option. And when they came back an hour later, no gas needed. They only had 15 minutes flight time. It was $280 plus tax to park. $280. And a Lancer Evolution is about the size of my Bonanza or, or a Cirrus, right? So ridiculous. The Cirrus that was parked next door paid 55 bucks. So there's no sanity. And this is basically, well, you're burning Jet A, you can afford it or whatever. So this uh, parking ramp thing we hope is going to break some of that free and provide some options to our members. Hope that answers your question, Trent. I think it's also important to recognize every owner type club group, I think over 250 signatures, 350, 350 signatures went to the, the house on a, in my testimony. Every aviation group, including the parachute group, I guess, not sure why they want it, but nonetheless, uh, they've all signed on to support this, which helps us in Congress to say this is not just a little issue, not a local issue. This is a national airspace issue that we sold off uh, our public access to the highest bidder. And listen, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I like people making money. All of us in the room have made money when we fly. But these airports were made to be accessed at reasonable prices for all users, not just a few. So it's probably one of our biggest fights. It's a little lonesome, I'll tell you, because there's a few people that don't agree with what we're trying to do in terms of uh, that. But uh, we got to find a way. And with that many signatures and that many voters, whether we're sitting with Senator Ted Cruz or, or Tammy Duxworth, all of them agree that we have to find a way. When it comes to, uh, down to basic med, I wanted to get back to that. Is there any chance of that progressing through and replacing all the class medicals all the way across the board, which is the big long-term question? Um, so I'm having trouble with basic med. Uh, when I went through it a couple of years ago, I had trouble finding a doctor who would actually sign off on it. So, so Lowell's question was, uh, yeah, basic med, where does it go from here? You know, I think we've got plenty of docs now in all the, all the states and all the places. We don't have that issue as much anymore because they've learned, educated, and now about 80,000 people have qualified to fly basic meds, so we have the real big numbers today. So docs are doing it, and I think we've proven, and you've proven, that it's just as safe as a third-class medical using your own doctor. So I think from a non-commercial perspective, it, we're well on our way to getting that conversion done. From a you know, commercial perspective, I'm not saying we're going to go there. I think we'll have the opportunity, as we have now with the safety pilots, the CFI, potentially DPEs, others to use basic med uh, is a real opportunity. But from a pure commercial perspective, I am not looking at going that direction at this point. Hello, Mark. How far along are our manufacturers in the testing of the GAMI fuel, fuel say, Cirrus? Um, I know they're testing it now. Just give it a timeline. Yep. 
by the way, that's one of our board of trustees, Amanda Farnsworth, and her husband Bob back there. So they're the ones that keep me employed. I appreciate that. <laughs> so the question was about uh, testing fuels, and Cirrus has done a really good job, and they're printed out some charts about the performance that they've seen in very significant testings of the, uh, the GAMI fuel demonstrations up in Duluth, Minnesota. And it has performed as well, or slightly maybe better than, uh, the low lead fuel. Now, there's still some hot and high hot fueling that haven't been tested yet from a serious perspective. Robinson Fuel, I understand, is going to be getting barrels of fuel any day now so that we can get the helicopters approved for this fuel. The others have not signed on to be tested yet from an NDA perspective. I'm talking about Lycoming or Continental. We expect that will start to occur with Piper and, and Cessna and others that are going to want to start using some of this fuel because it's ready to go at that point in time. So that's probably the next phase. So the question was, will the, will the STC disappear when, um, you know, like homing or continental sign, sign off on the fuel? And the answer is not necessarily. Uh, until it's actually recognized as a fleet-wide approval by the FAA, uh, which it's not. This is an STC per every spark plug ignition aircraft for the most part that's on that list, which are not helicopters, by the way, at the moment. Um, that has to be done by the FAA, and it has to be actually an application to get done. And there's a long list to get reasons why that's going to take a while. But you have to think about this as an SDC. You know the difference if you bought a different propeller for your airplane or a different set of brakes that has to be approved by the supplemental type certificate. So there's a piece of paperwork and some money that changes hands because of that. A quick question on the uh, high school STEM aviation program. Um, I tried getting one started in a high school up in Wisconsin, and after a year, the teacher said it wasn't meeting any of the, it didn't meet the state science, but it would be as a, a elective, and they just didn't have a big enough student population to keep it going. But, it'll, but in addition to that, um, I've been giving subscriptions to the high school library and the middle school library for magazines. It would be nice if we could get a package that you would recommend and give us maybe a reduced cost on members of the subscriptions themselves to put into the libraries just as trying to promote the young people to want a good end, uh, career. Well, this actually may be more for Colin, but have I got a deal for you. We got a program for 13 to 18 year olds where they can get a free membership which includes a magazine subscription. So they can actually have access to all that material as well as being able to call our pilot information center, um, being able to access the benefits of membership. So they get a lot of great reading material, a lot of great training material, and we encourage the teachers to ask those kids to sign up and take advantage of that. And a lot of teachers then use that material in their classrooms. Yeah, it's a good suggestion. Uh, there are a lot of libraries out there <laughs> um, getting all that information. It's, it's definitely something that we've talked about. How do we more effectively reach the teachers and the students? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent suggestion. Thank you. Mark, one last one. Um, going back to the GAMI fuel question and the STC, how does that, is that different for experimental if I'm going to fly it? So the experimental, because you don't use an STC, as you well know, <laughs> uh, there is a little different process. And I met with uh, Jack Pelton last night, EA, and he and George at uh, Braley at, at uh, GAMI are working through the process of getting the the uh, ingredients, if you will, listed that go into the fuel so that they can do a, um, a supporting uh, document that goes in. There has been one RV7 or RV10 that already is approved, so there's been a pathway that's been explored. So now they want to commercialize that. So. Uh, uh, better question for Jack than me, but it, it, it's working in the right direction.
Mark, last question. Yes. Hi, my name's John Mokel, and I've been an AOPA member since 1976, so I'm getting to be a really old person. So going for insurance today with basic med is proved to be a challenge because the insurance companies are saying, no, you have to go back to a third-class medical. And one of my insurance companies, the one that I was on, said, you have to go dual now. You have to have a licensed pilot with you to even fly. So I didn't know the insurance companies could take away your FAA license, but that's apparently what they're doing. So, so that's, a that's a really good point. And this last uh, memo that came out from the FAA, which says it's safe, uh, guess who we sent that to right away? The insurance underwriters. They need to be educated because we know that, that you're not the problem. I, by the way, I'm not the problem either. I've got my license at 77. So the idea that you know, we have highly experienced pilots that are trying to be safe and do the right thing is something that basic med does not get in the way from. And matter of fact, we've proven now, you've proven, that it's as safe as a third class medical. So it was very helpful. Now we can go have that conversation. I will tell you that I'm not here to defend the insurance companies, by the way, at all. Uh, but there is a correlation at some age with prop strikes. And prop strikes either come from a poor landing or gear up. And those are very expensive. And so is there a way to solve that with deductibles? I think that is the approach versus saying, you know, a third-class medical wouldn't have you do that. It doesn't matter. So we've got a lot of education to continue to happen on the on the behalf of the underwriters. But you're absolutely right. And uh, we're starting to see a little bit, a little bit better in the market today. It's getting a little better, but not fast enough. One more question over here. A corollary concern. I had um, a basic medical. I was going to go to Canada. I had to go back and get a third class to be able to go into Canada. Yeah, we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Yeah, that we approached the Canadians for five years in a row for a bilateral agreement. They haven't moved fast enough, but I think ICAO is going to get that done probably in the next year or so to have it understood as a basic tenant around the world, not just Canada. And the Canadians will accept it once ICAO does. Thanks much, all. We really appreciate your time, your membership, and your support of AOPI. Have a great day. Thanks for capturing that pilot town hall. It's always good to hear from Mark and the leadership answers lots of questions I think that members have and goes over priorities. So that's that's really good stuff. Glad to do it. Glad to be at Son of Fun. It was great to see all of our favorite folks there and folks who listen to Hangar Talk. As I guess it's more than the two or three people that I thought. So that's always good. News. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's right. I think that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. You can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon, Ian. All right. See you, David. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.